From the Canon Institute, this is Isabella Tabarovsky, and this is Russia File. In today's episode, we're discussing the role of historical memory of World War II in Russia today. Just a few days ago, President Putin released a long-expected paper which confirmed what many close observers have known for a long time, that the memory of World War II plays a crucial function for the Kremlin, so much so that it is willing to manipulate well-known history to fit its political needs. But while analysts typically focus exclusively on what the Kremlin does with the history of the war, it is far from the only narrative that exists in Russia. And today we're digging below the surface to uncover hidden narratives. We are recording this podcast on the eve of June 22nd, the date of the Nazi-German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941 and an important symbolic date for Russia. We're also doing it on the eve of the Victory Parade, which will mark the 75th anniversary of the end of the war and which will be taking place on June 24th. This parade normally takes place on May 9th, but this year it had to be rescheduled because of the pandemic. There is a symbolism to this date. It was on June 24th that the very first Victory Parade reviewed by Stalin took place in the Soviet Union 75 years ago in 1945. My conversation partners today are Maxim Trudalubov, a Russian journalist and editor-in-chief of the Russia File blog, and Masha Lipman, a well-known Russian political analyst and commentator whose research interests include the Russian media, state-society relations, and symbolic politics. She's a senior associate with Ponars Eurasia at the Institute of European, Eurasian, and Russian Studies at George Washington University. We began our conversation with a discussion of the meaning of June 22nd as a commemorative date and associations that each of us has with it. It's the beginning of the war, and I think it was it has been represented so much in Soviet cinematography, right, in, in Soviet and Russian culture, that when I think about this, my first associations are the planes bombing Soviet cities. What I see in front of me are literally frames from documentary footage. There is this notion of before and after, for sure. There was a Soviet film that I always think about when I think about this date, and tomorrow was war, Zavtra Bala which really represents this idea that June 22nd, it's summer, young people graduating, they are having celebrations. It's white nights in Leningrad. And then the next day, everything breaks and then the horror begins. I must have been a teenager when I first saw it that I thought about this idea of impermanence and how today may be a great and beautiful day and then tomorrow everything changes radically. So these are some of the kind of immediate associations for me. I'd love to hear what it is for you. Yeah, the imagery that you just described is certainly something that I also remember that comes to my mind. Um, Also, there are words, not just images, but words. And the words that I remember are treacherous attack, this is how uh, the beginning of the war was described uh, universally in the Soviet Union year after year. These words, treacherous attack, that emphasized that the Germans attacked unexpectedly, that nobody could even fathom that any such horror would happen. Without declaration of war was another cliche, another formula that uh, is deeply ingrained in my mind when I think about uh, June 22nd. 
And indeed, um, peaceful summer day, in fact, not even the day, but small hours of the morning. And of course, it's light. Uh, uh, it gets light in uh, our country very early in summer. So peaceful sunny morning is always emphasized in stories, in films. It is choir that is peaceful. The sun is blue. And suddenly, indeed, German bombers are coming to emphasize the rupture, to emphasize that life as we know it will never be the same. So this is what uh, June 22nd was associated with. However, I'm not sure this remains the same these days. In my very uh, non-scientific little survey, I asked a few uh, teenagers, and I'm sorry to say when I asked, uh, what is your association with June 22nd without naming the year? Nobody had a direct association. They were ashamed afterwards when I told them. But I think the imagery that uh, you and I share is not something that is shared by people who are in their teens these days. There's no question. All of them absolutely will know what May 9 is associated with, but maybe not necessarily June 22nd. Yeah, Marsha, come to, you know, you mentioned the Veralumne and the treacherous attack is something that I really remember well and something that I never could actually understand. This is something that I probably remember to this day because I couldn't understand why it was, why it was treacherous. I mean, it was an attack, obviously. The war started. It's all bad. But why it was so important to, I mean, the attack was always a treacherous attack. It was never just an attack. And, uh, you know, it took many, many years to understand the whole drama of the situation. It was a view from the very top. It, obviously, it was a view from the Kremlin that uh, it, it was a treacherous because there was apparently an agreement, right? And it wasn't supposed to happen. Anyway, I basically remember my granddads who were alive when I was in school and even a bit afterwards. And um, that was the days always associated with them. So we, we would talk on normally on the phone. They would say things never about the war, actually. It was just a, a family occasion. It was never obviously a holiday or anything. It was just a, a day. And, um, and we would talk about gardening and uh, going for a walk and what I just read. So it was a very family occasion associated with um, granddads. I'd also add that uh, to emphasize this rupture, this suddenly the, the worst possible thing happened, was emphasized in pioneer camps, summer camps for Soviet children. Very often, if a child happened to be in the pioneer camp in June, uh, this day was marked by a very early rise. Uh, children were woken up very early. I guess it was the time when uh, the treacherous attack took place, I think four in the morning or something. And then there was a lineup and uh, somebody, an adult, would tell them, would talk to them about, uh, well, this day so many years ago, the Germans attacked and uh, our heroic soldiers uh, defended our motherland. But the point was to wake up the children very early. I know that even today, some places do that. Masha, and I was really intrigued by what you said about teenagers not having the same associations. Is there then a generational divide in how we think about this date? 
Well, I think there's always a generational divide when uh, we look at the past. It is never the same. Even within the same generation, I think memories can be different. But certainly it is different for uh, somebody like myself and my grandchildren. Of course, it's different. I was growing up, uh, as I think all of us, all three of us, were in the Soviet Union, which had an extremely powerful propaganda machine. And if it wanted to inculcate something firmly in people's minds, it had uh, a reliable instrument to do that. And it was heavily centralized. So if treacherous attack it was, this was how it would be remembered by everyone. The language that was repeated every year. The language that you heard in school, you heard on the radio, you heard on television, uh, you heard in official speeches, it was always treacherous attack and always small hours of the morning emphasized. So this is how I remember it. And of course, it is not the same way now. And uh, uh, it was not the same way 30 years ago. The uh, perception and the uh, uh, narrative of the past, of course, changed in Gorbachev's years. And, of course, it changed before that uh, from Stalin to uh, Khrushchev to Brezhnev to Gorbachev. It always changes. Uh, so these days, May 9 remains uh, something that the state, the Kremlin, Putin personally, is extremely particular about. And I, I can't imagine there's a single person in today's Russia who wouldn't know uh, what May 9 means and what happened and which year it was. But June 22nd is marked. Of course, there's nothing to celebrate. It is in the calendar. It will be a special date. But um, no powerful imagery and, of course, nothing even close to the inculcation to the uh, narrative that is uh, imposed on the whole nation is associated with June 22nd. So this is really interesting. Is all of the cultural production, the Soviet cultural production related to war, is that still part of the culture in Russia? All of the wartime movies, the wartime songs that we all know. Uh, and by the way, I also, one of my associations also with June 22nd is that song, Rise the Great Country, which of course was written later to motivate people to resist and to fight. But is that part of today's culture or is that also now in the past? Well, I think very much so. And I'm sure television shows old films and newer movies uh, about the war. And I'm sure there are movies made uh, for this anniversary because this uh, this year, of course, Russia is celebrating the 75th anniversary of, of the victory. Um, uh, there are new movies made, old movies shown, uh, of course, songs, and people know them. Even those who do not have a Soviet experience uh, still would know many of the songs. You mentioned one. There was also uh, one called The Alarm Bells of Buchenwald, also a song written in the very late 50s, extremely popular about, of course, the obvious Buchenwald, uh, not accidentally um, Nazi camp, uh, not for Jews because this was not a, an issue that uh, was emphasized in the Soviet Union, but uh, a Nazi camp for communists. And there was another song uh, that was also very popular in the Soviet days, whether Russians want war. And I think it is important to remember that in the Soviet Union, 
recollections of the war, the celebrations of victory went side by side with uh, an emphasis on the peaceful nation and nature of Soviet socialism. That's very important. And I think that is lost now because the Soviet Union and its propaganda emphasized that we in the socialist camp are all for peace. It's over there in the West that they are militarists and they want another war. And we are peaceful people. Uh, that was very, very important. And I think it shows us that the way the war was remembered was as something horrible, heroic, but also horrible, something that we do not want to come back. There was this popular cliche in the Soviet Union, anything but not the war. Anything goes uh, as long as there will be, there is not another war. So the recollections of heroism and the magnificence and significance of the Soviet victory went side by side with that. We don't want another war. Of course, uh, it was hypocritical. And of course, in fact, the Soviet policy was not that peaceful. But the emphasis was on that. And this is reflected in many of the songs. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Anyone who, who lived in the 70s and the 80s remembers really well, uh, as I do, that it was all about, we should never repeat that, never again. It was repeated like a mantra, including by my uh, relatives, by my uh, both of my granddads. Uh, and I think what has changed is, is that when today's politicians decided to pick the victory day and uh, all the stories about the war as kind of a focal point for today's never again to this general triumphalism and uh, victory as the achievement uh, of Russia as a nation, as the main, the primary achievement and an event to rally uh, around for, for the entire nation. And that, of course, uh, has been done, um, you know, in a, in a kind of a calculated way. It was a, a political, and it still is a political construct uh, in a way, and um, obviously, they've been trying ever since to build a myth, a narrative around this, a new one that I think is different from uh, the one that uh, we inherited from the Soviet time, which we all remember in the Soviet movies. The ones that, um, you know, being produced now are different. And uh, it probably remains to be analyzed uh, uh but um, they shift the focus. I'm not sure they've been really successful in creating this new myth, but clearly the attempt has been made to build new post-Soviet nation around this one and singular event that uh, causes no controversy, as it were. It's probably the, the one and only thing in uh, for today's uh, Russian society that almost universally accepted, agreed upon, yes, uh, that was an evil, and we we fought the right cause, we were on the right side, we won, this is the victory, it's the very simple, very basic things, and um, kind of a, an easy and uh, sure solution to a nation-building project that um, Putin and, and his circle have been trying to achieve, but uh, I, I think it remains to be seen whether they've succeeded, really.
What makes all of this so maddeningly complex, and what many of those who look at Russia from the outside don't fully appreciate, is the fact that there are numerous stories that diverge from this heroic national narrative. There are personal and family stories that don't fit easily into the black and white narrative of good versus evil. Even as the country fought Nazi Germany, it continued to operate its own system of concentration camps, the Gulag. There are stories of the POWs, Red Army soldiers and officers who were captured by the Germans and abandoned and worse considered traitors by their motherland. There are stories of the people such as the Crimean Tatars, the Chechens and the Ingush that were deported from their homes because they were judged to be hostile to the Soviet Union. There was the extermination of the Jews in the occupied territories and the national forgetting after the war. After the war, none of these stories and experiences were honored. They were all pushed away, forgotten. How do we, for whom these collective and personal memories are an inextricable part of who we are, reconcile them in our heads? The overarching narrative of indisputable heroism and massive and decisive contribution to a victory in a terrible war and all these other complicated human stories. I think narratives are quite a few. You know, narratives change with time as we spoke, but even narratives and recollections of the same generation vary quite a bit uh, depending on personal experience. Even if we're talking about the war generation, there were those who found themselves in the occupied territories. And it was a beastly occupation. Of course, Slavs, Russians were treated by the Nazis as untermensch, people of an inferior race. And the occupation was truly horrific experience. There is an experience of those who were evacuated. Let's not forget about that. It was a massive, I think, the largest in world history evacuation of industries, but also people who were relocated to places they had never been, where they had to uh, be around strangers, sometimes friendly, sometimes not at all, sometimes in a very inauspicious environment, climate-wise and otherwise, in uh, cramped quarters. And this also, of course, generated uh, recollections that was different from the uh, recollections of those who uh, fought and survived and came back. So at least that distinguishes different recollections. And then comes, of course, the issue of narratives. Do we just remember the Great Patriotic War as the Russian government, the Kremlin, something that Maxim just spoke about? Uh, the war begins on June 22, 1941, ends on May 9, uh, 1945. Or do we also look at what happened before? And, of course, the issue, the extremely controversial issue of Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and the secret protocol, something that has become extremely divisive these days between countries, Europe and Russia, especially Eastern Europe and Russia, occupation, uh, division of Poland, and Katyn massacre. There's, uh, well, a uh, long history, long tragic history there. And, of course, the post-war history. Uh, the post-war history about the new world order and about the order, the communist order um, imposed by the Soviet Union on the uh, part of Europe 
uh, close to the Soviet borders. New World Order, uh, division between First World, Second World, however you call it, uh, capitalist world, socialist world. So do we also look at that, those regimes? Uh, of course, it creates a totally different history of the war, wartime, and different recollections. The unpreparedness, uh, Maxim raised this issue very early in our conversation. Why treacherous attack? Well, I guess the emphasis on treacherous uh, was to cover up or to somehow explain the unpreparedness of the Soviet Union to this war, because the beginning of the war was really, really tragic with unprepared, unequipped soldiers thrown into this war and used as human resource to be wasted, to be spent. And it was spent. Mass desertions, by the way. It was a really, really tragic beginning of the war. And it was only maybe over one and a half, almost two years late in 1943, when the Red Army became uh, this victorious force and then marched west and farther and farther westward until the victory in May. So uh, there are so many things to remember there. And even if we look at the official narrative, how that changed over time, because to Khrushchev, his narrative that he offered the nation was part of his anti-Stalinist policy. And the most important thing about it probably is the number of casualties, because the number of casualties announced by Stalin right after the war was 7 million people lost in the Great Patriotic War. This number was determined by the German losses, because the official figure of German losses was 7 million, and the Soviet Union would not, Stalin's Soviet Union would not recognize that it lost more. As soon as Khrushchev became the leader, the number grew immensely to 20 million people, and to him it was part of his anti-Stalin narrative something Stalin did not recognize, part of the exposure. And of course, it took a few more decades until Gorbachev times when this uh, figure rose to uh, an even unfathomable 27 million people. Yeah, and um, also to add to that, that um, the way I remember it from my childhood, the conversations, the way the memory functioned, lived within a family, there was always a gap between the official holidays and the, uh, the official narratives, even at the time, and what the actual people uh, thought and uh, felt about the experience. And uh, the official holidays, even given the fact that uh, the, the mantra about the never again approach was repeated, it was all about the triumph of a political system, a triumph of the war uh, machinery, the commanders, the great uh, armed forces, the Red Army. It was emphasized, uh, whereas uh, the actual people who still remembered the events, they always felt, My actually my recollection is that they were a bit embarrassed by all of that themselves because they understood that, yes, we live in, in a country like that. Yes, uh, this is a uh, there is a political side to everything, and so we have to emphasize uh, the fact that the victory was not just a victory of people. It was a victory of the world's most important socialist country. and um, But they were a bit embarrassed because it was never enough uh, space for uh, really personal stories. Even when uh, with time, later, later, with uh, closer to 
the collapse of the uh, um, Soviet system, there were more and more books appeared written from the perspective of a, just a regular uh, army, regular person uh, from down uh you know on the floor on uh, in the trenches the trench war uh the terrible experience memories all that that sounded almost like you know so somewhat of you know kind of a dissident view of those events despite the fact that the, the books were sold openly but in in my family which was not in any way dissident a very very typical typical soviet family that sounded that like something new something uh eye opening i remember that very well reading those um, books that felt new, that felt that they provided uh, an angle on the events that um, officially only were only supposed to be seen as a triumph of a system. I'd probably add to that a little bit. Actually, as with Stalinism, more general terms, there was this wave of de-Stalinization of, after Khrushchev when the so-called lieutenant's prose, novels and uh, stories written by veterans uh, who were still very young, who wrote to describe their experience as it were from the trenches. We had that. We had that in the 50s. Some of those novels and short stories survived through this period and were probably superseded by the more triumphant tone and the more triumphant narrative that uh, Maxim mentioned. Some, at least one, especially one, uh, Viktor Nikrasov's uh, Vakup of Stalingrada in Stalingrad's Trenches, was a uh, uh, novel or a uh, long story that was almost banned after it was published in the late 50s. As with the general destalinization, which rose under Khrushchev and then were uh, somehow pushed aside and hushed down uh, during the decades of Brezhnev, same happened with the recollections of the war, with the narrative of the war, with the literature of the war. Brezhnev, who uh, was the first to hold a really, really grand celebration, 1965, 20 years of victory, used the war as a new way to legitimize uh, the Soviet regime, who was no longer um, legitimized by the revolution for a variety of reasons, not least because the old Bolsheviks who... Uh, uh, were the heroes of the revolution. Nearly all of them uh, by then had been shot, exterminated in Stalin's camps. Uh, the system needed a new legitimacy, and the war and the victory was a very appropriate way to legitimize the regime. And actually, it is interesting that uh, the Soviet Union began as a state of proletarian internationalism, in which classes were more important than nationalities. But the war was a patriotic war, which changed the narrative, which changed the system of references. And so it came naturally that the regime is legitimized by this uh, glorious, uh, gigantic victory, in which, of course, the socialist system demonstrated its advantage over capitalism. One of the most important things about the memory of the war in Russia is not the overt pageantry of big commemorations and parades, but the silences that punctuate it. The silence of the veterans that we already touched upon the silence of those whose personal recollections did not seem to interest those around them for a very long time. I wonder why they were silent. The only analogy I have is one with the Holocaust. For many years, and even decades, Holocaust survivors kept silent. 
Their children often speak about that silence that dominated their childhoods. There was perhaps an inability to convey the horror of what had happened to them, a sense that ordinary words could not express what happened. For some, there was also a sense of shame, a false sense of shame to be sure, the question of how could something like this happen to us. There was also the feeling that those around them, those who hadn't experienced the horror, could never understand them because the experience was so singular and so traumatic. Could that, the feeling that they would never be understood, have been the reason behind the silence of the veterans and others with direct experience of the war? Or was it perhaps a fear of the state, a fear of coming across as dissenting and diminishing the glory of the national story? My recollection of my two granddads is that they really didn't have the language to talk about the things they probably wanted to talk about. And they were very, very Soviet people. They were of the generation that grew up, that never saw anything but the Soviet system. They grew up, they were very young in the 20s, uh, and then and they were 20s and late 30s throughout the, the war experience and immediate time afterwards. They were brought up by the system. They only read the books that were available to them uh, through the Soviet schools, through the Soviet education system, etc. And because no other narratives existed in the open, in the public, they, they, they didn't have the words. That's my that's my understanding. Also, their recollection, their own, the way they remembered the war, which sometimes they would slip, you know, something terrible happened. We couldn't understand why we were left in this or that place, why there were, you know, commanders were contradicting each other. You know, we, we had to rush ahead, then we had to stop, then we had to go back. No one knew, or we had to evacuate in, in you know, enormous numbers, or like dozens of people perished around you. I don't know, I, I remember a story with one of my granddads who miraculously escaped death because he was late for a boat and the boat exploded uh, in front of him. Anyway, so those things, they would mention them almost in passing. But that was, those were the, the kind of things that they remembered. But what they saw in the open, in the public, in the books and films and everything was something very, very different. Well, I think there is certainly truth to what um, uh, you said, Isabel. And I think it overlaps a bit with what uh, Maxim said, that there was no language. There were things uh, that uh, they probably were ashamed of, and especially uh, the early period of, of the war, the cowardice, the desertions, the betrayals. And I would like to mention a very good new book written about the war, um, Brendan Schechter's The Stuff of Soldiers, in which he's focused on the material side of the war, the objects of the war. And he cites, uh, among tons of other facts, that it was very common in the early period of the war to take off the boots of your fallen friends, of the people who fought side by side with you in the trenches. He's dead. He no longer needs his boots. Boots are precious. Without boots, you did. And it was common practice. This is not something that, that you would uh, uh, readily recollect and talk about afterwards. But uh, there was also what I think, Isabel, you mentioned uh, that um, people will not understand. 
we cannot say that nobody remembered that everyone was silent. Of course, there were different people with different experiences. But this actually what was what happened on the Victory Day, May 9, when the veterans were still alive and could get together. And they, uh, they would meet their old aging uh, brothers in arms, people they fought with. And among them, they shared recollections because they would understand. In another book that um, I, I truly admire, um, uh, Russian historian Yelena Zubkova about the post-war, the immediate post-war Soviet society, she describes the experience of veterans right after the war, the 40s when they yearned for some contact with those who could understand. And of course, everyone lived in cramped quarters and, uh, you know, there was no way to, to get together. So they would get together outside in shabby little booths that would sell beer and they would have drinks, maybe too many. And there they would recollect, standing sometimes in the snow and the rain and uh, and remembering the hardships and the horrors and the falling friends. Um, so all of this come together, not necessarily in silence, but in problems with recollecting and problems with sharing the experience that probably only those could understand who shared it with you. Unless, of course, you were a writer. And there were, of course, uh, a great deal of writers who had the experience of the war and who uh, wrote about uh, the war later without the immediate experience of it. I think that also the fact that all those uh, other stories about the war viewed not by those who actually fought it, that was uh, the one that uh, at least I remember from my childhood, but viewed from the point of those who had to flee, who were on the occupied territories, uh, and uh, those who were arrested, uh, those uh, and numerous other, the, the, those who were deported by the Soviet government. So those stories never really, I mean, to this day, they have not been heard. Although, of course, there are memories, there are books, there are lots of stuff in the archives. So it's all probably waits for researchers and historians and writers to work with. But uh, to this day, those other stories about the war, they remain untold, I would say. And that also limits the language, limits the, uh, the way we see those events. Absolutely. And I think, and they may have been told elsewhere, or they may even have been told in Russia, but there is the difference between telling a story and incorporating it into collective memory. And so when I think about that, for example, I think about the subject of the Holocaust, how I don't believe it's really part of the collective memory in Russia as something that is part of the story of the war that needs to be remembered. Because in Russia, when you think about the Holocaust, people mostly talk about or they think about you know, concentration camps, death camps in that the Nazis built in the occupied Polish territories. People hardly ever think about the fact that some 2.7 million people out of 6 million were murdered in the territories that, you know, by 1941 were part of the Soviet Union. And so it's not about the camps. It's about, you know, Holocaust by bullets, quote unquote, murdering people right there next to their homes, next to their villages and pits, etc., etc. So that story, I feel, is not really incorporated into Russia's national story, although I see things changing, but also kind of in a, in a fairly instrumentalized way. And another story that I also think makes for 
potentially quite a contradiction is the fact that repressions continued during the war. You know, my great-grandfather was arrested in August of 41. He had been informed on he's arrested and he dies in prison or he's murdered in prison. In, we don't even know, frankly, what exactly happened because they said that he just died of a heart attack, but it was a very common thing to say. And then 15 years later, he was rehabilitated. But, but the point is that the gulag existed. People were still being arrested. Prisoners of war, Soviet prisoners of war were considered traitors. They would be sent to the gulag. So that's, that's, I don't think that that is part of the national kind of collective memory. Or is it? I don't know. Tell me. What do you think? Well, of course, it is and it isn't. If I'd start with uh, your second point about the repressions. And, of course, the figure of Stalin looms large in today's perception of Russians. He is still deemed to be the most prominent, the most significant Russian. This is a divisive issue. Some think uh, that he's, he was a butcher. Some think that he was a uh, heroic leader of the Soviet Union who made it uh, a great nation. However, it would be wrong to say that this memory does not exist. It certainly does. But it is extremely hard to reconcile uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, as a victorious nation and Russia, the Soviet Union, as a nation that exterminated its own people by the millions. I would quote from an article written by uh, a person who uh, um, is no longer alive and uh, whose memory is very dear to me, Arseniy Raginsky, who probably did more than anybody else in today's Russia, in uh, post-communist Russia, for the memory of Tara. Here's from his article. If state terror was a crime, then who was the criminal? The state? Stalin as the head of the state? But we won the war against absolute evil. And so we were not the subjects of a criminal regime, but a great country, the embodiment of everything good in the world. And um, I think it's a very simple uh, and uh, very precise way of describing how irreconcilable the two memories are. Uh, it is not that the Kremlin would like uh, to forget the theory altogether. After all, uh, Putin personally attended the inauguration of a memorial in uh, downtown Moscow uh, to the victims of Stalin, of Stalinism. But on the other hand, as I, as I said, Stalin uh, is inevitably rising with the cult, with the worship of the victory in World War II, which has evolved, which has emerged, especially in recent years, especially in Putin's Russia, as basically a pillar of the Russian identity. And as to the Holocaust, well, uh, the Soviet Union had anti-Semitism of its own. Of course, not of a scale of Nazi Germany, but uh, this was something that was not talked about. And uh, even identifying yourself as Jewish was something embarrassing, something that, um, you know, people said in a whisper, my personal experience. I mentioned already the song, uh, the uh, alarm bell of Buchenwald. It is not accidental that the Soviet Union picked this one camp that was not about exterminating Jews. It was a horrific Nazi camp, extermination camp, concentration camp, but it was not about Jews. In today's Russia, it is different because Holocaust is much more the problem of Ukraine and Belarus, uh, not Russia itself. 
So the, the problem of Holocaust was something that became part, inherent part, and more and more so as years and decades went by in Europe and the West. Uh, so World War II was about victory of Nazi Germany that was the perpetrator of the Holocaust. The Soviet Union focused more when it came to Germany about uh, Germany being anti-communist and exterminating communism. There is, uh, there are definitely more mentions of the Holocaust in today's Russia. And in very recent times, not least because the Russian contribution or the Soviet contribution, the Red Army contribution to the liberation of Europe and the liberation of Jews in Auschwitz is being underrated. And just very recently, we heard that it was the Allied troops, the Allied armies that liberated Auschwitz, uh, whereas, in fact, it was the Red Army, a member of the alliance, but but it was not all the uh, Allied forces. And this is but one of the episodes in which the contribution of the Soviet Union in the victory over Nazi Germany uh, and in the liberation of Jews is being uh, very, I would say, very seriously and I think unpardonably underestimated. Well, it's interesting to hear you say it because I think that among the Jewish communities themselves, and certainly in Israel, I think there is very much an understanding, uh, a sense of gratitude for what the Red Army did. And, you know, we have to remember that half a million Jews served in, in the Red Army. But I think that you're right in the broader communities, probably, as especially as Russia once again has become kind of the worst enemy of the West, uh, it has become quite possibly underestimated. I think that that's a, that's a very good point. The story of the Red Army actually is very interesting for me, the, the, sto- the narratives around the Red Army, because the only narrative that is, that is permitted on the collective kind of national level is one of heroism. But then on the other hand, you have the story of the Soviet POWs who were just treated just awfully, right? Millions that died in while imprisoned. And that's kind of a an orphan story. Nobody owns it and nobody really talks and, and researches this story very much. Um, and so that's, that's a really tragic story. Uh, but on the other hand, you have the story of Red Army soldiers as they were, as they entered Europe, um, the story of the rape of the German women. I remember my shock when I first read about it, that it was just so completely outside my consciousness and awareness. So even in that seemingly straightforward narrative of heroism, obvious heroism that was shown, uh, there are complications, right, and shades of gray. And so it's not a, a kind of single clear narrative. Yeah, ex- exactly. And I, I, I totally agree, Isabella. I think that those stories that are not part of the mainstream, the, the, the narrative that's been chosen by essentially politicians from the heroic standpoint. Those stories, they have to be told and more from the probably grassroots up rather than uh, the top-down myth that um, uh, the Kremlin still is still trying to support and, and create. So I, I would just probably try and imagine, uh, I don't know if, if, if that even possible, by the way, uh, I wonder what you, Masha, actually think about that. Is that possible to imagine in an ideal world would there be bottom-up stories other stories about the world would they be possible in the future because that would change the that was that would change the focus that would allow all those 
other orphan stories and uh, give us the actual more complex uh, and better view of the past. What do you think? Well, at this point, I think what we have is a very powerful myth that is uh, disseminated and inculcated by the government itself. And of course, it's from top down. Uh, and as long as this is the case, and as long as this remains the uh, pillar of uh, the post-Soviet Russian identity, I don't think that those other orphan stories, that there is space for them in the uh, state narrative. I think what is important is that uh, there be freedom for those who um, want to write and talk about it to do so. I think that's key. I don't think uh, those who care about those orphan stories um, can actually, in any conceivable future, expect that their truth, their memories, their, their, their narrative become the master narrative of the country. I don't think so. I think we, and here I think I, I, I belong to this group, I think we should be humble enough uh, to recognize that. Uh, what I think uh, is key, and uh, to me is most important, is that uh, there remain uh, freedom of expression, so that this narrative is not looked upon with suspicion so that uh, those who want to uh, convey this narrative be allowed to do so. Because the war has become such a state-forming myth, I don't think any state-forming myth can be nuanced. It is reduced to a minimum, to what almost anyone can remember. There was this war, it was horrible, uh, we are a heroic nation, we won, we triumphed, and uh, 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 Russia is great. All other narratives should, must uh, uh, have a way to exist and uh, be legitimate to the extent of um, archives should be accessible, uh, books can be read and be on sale. That any civic group, any civic initiative that wants to convey and promote uh, this other narrative can do so. Unfortunately, this is not always the case in Russia. I would not say that in today's Russia it is impossible. Yes, it is. A memorial society is struggling, but uh, it is not banned. It functions, and uh, there are other groups uh, and authors and activists who seek to uh, promote this narrative and do so. But there are very deplorable instances when people get punished and even on go on trial for telling the story that the government does not want to be told including about uh, Stalin's terror. And Yuri Dmitriev is one person who has been in pretrial detention for a long, long time now, a person who is a member of Memorial in the Russian North and uh, uh, who worked indefatigably um, toward the commemoration of the victims of, the, um, of Stalin's terror. Yeah, I think that um, we, are, uh, we will inevitably, with time, come to uh, a more complex uh, view of the war and uh, I'm still I mean it still remains to be seen uh, how it will evolve but I cannot help thinking that if we think about it or let's say you know, if the politicians think about it as state founding myth it keeps this internal the, an internal conflict is in there because of all those additional stories and other stories that that don't fit and um, if you treat it as a myth, 
you will inevitably come to all those controversies and we've seen that a lot of that already with when we had this minister of culture Vladimir Medinsky who's uh, basically uh, a professional PR person and uh, who knows how to create narratives and myths himself and uh, that was his uh, uh, you know attitude uh, to the history of war as well and he was his project was to try and create an officially approved narrative of the war and fund the movies, uh, the stories, etc., etc. But uh, I think that with time, we will just uh, arrive at a point where we would see that uh, it's not really, it, it cannot re really be treated as a myth, uh, uh, but uh, something else uh, instead. The last question I want to ask is, I think it's something that many um, of our American listeners certainly don't necessarily understand Why are we all, why are all Russians are seemingly so obsessed with the war? Why is it such a subject that we talk and talk and talk about and can't stop talking about? And here we are again today talking about it. Why is it so crucial? Why not talk more about the future? Why are we so obsessed with the past? I don't really have a very good uh, answer to that. My feeling is that it has been imposed on us. It's a, it's a really a top-down creation, a policy. And uh, I remember when it uh, intensified uh, probably in mid-2000s uh, or later, to, a bit later maybe, because it. I still remember well the original narratives, the, the way it was treated before. And I think it's an issue of memory politics the way the Kremlin understands it, uh, because they see narratives, history, as something that um, they could use to counter other narratives, the, the hostile stories that come from mostly from the West. And they themselves think that those stories that come from the West, that they, are, they, they had been weaponized. So they have to respond and weaponize their own story and sort of change it and tweak it and make it into a good enough weapon. And I think it's just a matter of the kind of thinking, the mindset that is very common in the Kremlin, uh, where there are lots of uh, people who uh, are PR managers or learned to be PR managers and marketing specialists during the 90s. I think it's just uh, a product of uh, their thinking. I'd make two points here. Um, one is that the um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia faced the need uh, to build a new state, to come up with a concept and a narrative uh, that would... Um, convey to Russians, what are we today, uh, if not Soviet? What is with Russia? What is its identity, if it's not Soviet anymore? So the choices probably could be different. But at the end of the day, we see that this task, this challenge has not been met. This is not true just of Russia alone. This is the problem that many post-Soviet countries uh, had to deal with. And in many of those countries, I think this nation building has not been completed. The uh, liberals or Democrats, however, however we define those people who were allies of Yeltsin in the 90s, did not rise to this challenge. They failed to come up with something that would be palatable, that would be acceptable for the nation as a whole. Their attempt was uh, too negative. We are anti-communist. 
we reject everything Soviet, but they were very weak on offering anything positive. Now, Putin saw this apparently as uh, this uh, uh, challenge of nation building as an important one. And he uh, spoke about that ever since he is actually day one in office. There are many quotes to this effect. Uh, what uh, he's come up with is the war and the victory in the war. The war reduced to victory. And uh, this being the pillar, this being the foundation of the new Russian nation. This was not a bad choice in that uh, at least it is not divisive to the extent that any other attempt uh, to offer a foundation, uh, to offer a new basis for identity uh, to Russia. It tapped into a pre-existing perception of the war as being something gigantic, something heroic, something that everyone remembers. Well, it's it's a very difficult question, and I think uh, Maxim touched upon it, uh, to what extent uh, the memories of the war are divisive or actually uniting. But there's definitely an element to it that is uniting. Everyone in Russia today remembers what May 9 uh, is, what happened on that day, who was the enemy, uh, that Russia won, that this is what makes Russia great. Uh, this is something. This is not enough. Uh, this certainly does not look sufficient to either Maxim or myself. But this is something, and uh, nobody has been able to offer anything that's better so far. So that's one point. My other point uh, will be shorter, talking about the future. Why isn't uh, Putin offering something that would be a vision for the future or somebody else? Well, I think uh, it is not just Russia's problem. I think we all face these, this problem these days. During Cold War, things looked simple in a sense. They looked black and white. The Western world or the first world envisioned the future in which eventually everyone would be democratic somehow or other. And of course, the Soviet Union saw a future of communism. Uh, these days are over, regardless of who believes what these days, but that's over. The vision of the future is blurred, to say the least, in any country, in any culture today, maybe with the exception of... Uh, you know, radical Islam, maybe they see a future, but I don't think this is acceptable to, this uh, appears acceptable to any of us. So in a situation when the vision of the future is at best blurred, the temptation to look into the past is all the stronger. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.